Connection Unpacked, where we discuss the pull of the past every week. I'm your host, Allison Treat. I'm an author of historical fiction and a freelance editor. Welcome to my show. Hello, readers. Welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Today, I'm going to talk to Tracy Lawson. Her passion for storytelling led her first into the field of educational theater and dance, where she has enjoyed a career spanning nearly three decades. In the past 10 years, she's turned her hand to writing, and I'm going to speak with her about her debut historical novel, Answering Liberty's Call, Anna Stone's Daring Ride to Valley Forge. So we talk more about this book in the interview, so I don't want to Um, tell you too much about it right now in the intro. But I do want to tell you that Tracy is Anna Stone's great, 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 great granddaughter. And um, she is a native of Cincinnati, Ohio, and she currently resides in the Dallas, Texas area. I have to clarify because I live in northeastern Pennsylvania, and there is a Dallas not too far from where I live. So uh, local listeners might think that's where I'm talking about. I recently finished reading this book, um, and so it was after I did the interview later on, just this summer, actually, I finished reading the book, and I thoroughly enjoyed it, and so I'm really excited to share with you my conversation with Tracy Lawson. Tracy, I'm so happy you're joining me on the show today. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks. Your historical fiction debut, Answering Liberty's Call, released January 27, 2021. Can you tell me about this book? Yes. This is based on a true story, um, a family tale that stars my six times great-grandparents. And it's a story that I did Mm -hmm. not grow up hearing as a child, but I discovered recently while I was compiling a genealogy for my parents' 50th anniversary and looking for interesting stories on both sides of the family. Um, And the story is that Anna, um, well, I'll just give you the elevator pitch. Um, War may be men's business, but that doesn't stop Anna Stone from getting involved in the fight for liberty. When her soldier husband and brothers face starvation at Valley Forge, Anna strikes out alone on horseback over 200 miles of rough roads to bring them life-sustaining supplies. While on her journey, Anna learns of a plot to overthrow General Washington and replace him with a commander who will surrender to the British. She agrees to carry a message of warning and with the fate of the American Revolution in her hands, races to reach Valley Forge before one of the conspirators, who is in hot pursuit, can intercept her. So exciting. I started reading it. I read the first few chapters, and it's like you get right into the story. It's so exciting. Oh, thank you. I'm just curious, like, this this heroine is based on your, you said, your six times Mm great-grandmother. How did you come to the decision, like, you mentioned how you found the story, but um, how did you decide to, to turn it into a novel? Well, I was working on another book series when I discovered the story. And so I kind of filed it away just in my mental file. And then after I wrapped that series I was writing for young adults, um, my husband and I were driving one afternoon to go visit friends around Christmas time. We were listening to a podcast on the radio. And when the, when the host said, we rarely see history from a woman's point of view. I thought, well, golly, I should do something about that since I didn't, I didn't have a current project. And so I, you know, immediately I cast about for who can I write about? What do I know? And then I thought, oh, golly, I've got Anna. She's right there and, you know, she's right there in my family. So I grabbed a notepad yeah. and pen out of the 
out of my purse and I was writing notes all the way to our destination. And I started work on the book the next day. Oh, wow. That's so cool. So can you tell me about your research process? And oh, first of all, I want to know, is that her real name, Anna Stone? Yes, Was that yes it is. Okay. Yeah, um, Stone is my maiden name too. So um, my, I'm descended from their oldest wow. son, Elijah Craig, and it came down through the, the dads until my dad. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool to know that I had the same uh, surname as her when I was growing up. So let's see. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the, well, of course, um, I started with the DAR chapter that's named in Anna's honor. Um, and it's in Cambridge, mm. Ohio, which is a smaller town um, to the east of Columbus. And so I got in touch with the chapter regent and asked them for the information that they had based on Anna and her story. And so once I had gotten their files, I got on, you know, just did a started with a Google search and Ancestry.com, pulling up as much information as I could to learn about her and her world, her family, um, the circumstances under which she lived. And a lot of the factual research that I dredged up helped me shape her as a character. Okay. What did you need? Did you need to fabricate things? And how did you figure out what to fabricate? Or was it mostly, I mean, it can't be mostly straight history because it's a novel. Right. Um, so how did you walk that line, I guess? Is what well, I yes, it was, it was interesting because um, when the chapter, the DAR chapter was formed in 1923, the first historian had penned an account of Anna's ride. And she was a great, great granddaughter of Anna. And she had heard mm -hmm. the story from her grandfather, who had lived in the house with Anna and Benjamin when they were in their you know, declining years, they lived with their son, Jeremiah, and their son, Jeremiah's son, Benjamin Butler, named for his grandfather, um, had heard the stories of this, you know, ride to Valley Forge when he was a little boy. So as he wow. grew up, he shared the story down the line. And so two of his, his granddaughters formed the DAR chapter in 1923. And so Harriet had written this uh, kind of flowery, kind of put Nana up on a pedestal story, but it was a great girl power story. And it gave mm -hmm. me a framework to work within. Now it didn't um it didn't give you like a blow by blow of what was happening, the dynamics within the family, and it got some details wrong, but most of the details that I found the discrepancies were the kind of thing that if you passed a story down through the ages, or even if you played a game of telephone at a slumber party, how the, the message gets garbled just as it gets mm -hmm. passed from person to person. Um, and so, you know, we'll, we can talk more about some of those discrepancies as we go along, but I wasn't able to substantiate everything in the story. But then on the other hand, I was able to substantiate enough that I thought, well, if I was an attorney and I was building a case for reasonable doubt, I should just go for it. And then I was able to, um, uh, well, like what happened to her dialogue, things like that. Those were fabricated, but I tried to stick to things that likely could have happened or things that were happening. Um, in one instance, she realizes that someone is smuggling guns into one of the uh, prisoner of war camps so that possibly the British officers can can like do a breakout and get away. And this was the kind mm. of thing that did happen at that particular location. It just didn't happen necessarily when Anna was riding by. So I wanted to, you okay. know, bring bring light to the kinds of things that were going on behind the scenes that we might not have heard of in our survey of U.S. history classes when we were in high school or college. Um, and so, you know, I tried right. to stay as true to the kinds of things that could go wrong as possible, even if um, I had to really pack them into the story. Because if you want to read a thriller, you don't read a, read a story about um, somebody going on a horseback journey and nothing happening to them, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's right. Um, So you mentioned to me that we have certain perceptions of women's roles in colonial America. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you enlighten us about this? Sure. Well, we felt like, you know, maybe people imagine that women stayed at home. They, you know, listened to their husbands. They only did what they were told. They had certain roles that they didn't deviate from. You know, they raised the children. They handled manufacturing clothes and and keeping everybody fed. But I think a lot of women deviated from those roles when it was necessary. And it was especially necessary during the the years of the American Revolution when most of the men were away at war. So we we maybe don't give women credit for enough, um, for, for doing enough. And I think that there were probably hundreds, if not thousands of women who stepped up in a similar way to Anna. Um, We just don't hear about it. Um, let's see some of the things that they might've done. Of course they would have kept farms running, run small businesses. Um, they still were bound by a lot of laws like coverture, which said a woman couldn't, um, you know, file papers in court or run a business if her husband was alive because the coverture law made a husband and wife basically one person, not just in the eyes of like a, a marriage role, but also in a legal role. So if mm-hmm. a woman married a man and she brought property into the into the marriage, then the property became something that the husband would manage. Um, the man managed all the th- things that had to do with their children because the children really belonged to him and not her. And these were things that when I discovered them, I realized that they would have affected Anna most profoundly. Um, and because especially the laws governing widows and orphans, they had a really hard time in the colonial period and in the early years of the uh, America, you know, up until about the 1800s, there were laws governing widows and orphans that said that if your father was dead, then you were an orphan, even if your mother was alive and able to care for you. And I found this very distressing when I when I learned this. And then I also realized through my research that Anna had been orphaned at the age of nine because her father Mm. had died when she was only nine years old and left the family with the oldest son, about 13 years old, maybe 14, and several children younger than him. So a woman who was left alone, I found his will in county records and like the inventory of his property and stuff. And he was worth about 50 pounds. And in today's dollars, that would be about $9,000. And it was all in household goods. He didn't own any property. It was just like their their furniture, their bedding, their tools, their, you know, some some stock, like a couple of pigs and a horse and a cow, but he didn't own Mm -hmm. land. And so how would a woman who can't start a business, who can't do anything, basically, how could she support these children? And the answer was she couldn't. And so that would be when the, the county court would step in and appoint a guardian. And the guardian was supposed to manage, of course it was a man, was supposed to manage mm-hmm. the children's inheritances, if there were any, to see that they got an education if there was money set aside for that, handle the dowries for the girls when they married, and also if there wasn't enough money to put those children into apprenticeships or indentures to to keep them from becoming a public charge because tax bases were very small. The cities were very small and supporting people who couldn't take care of themselves was a heavy drain on these little communities. So the very first, um, you know, very first responsibility and, and first priority was to keep these kids from going on any form of welfare. Mm. 
And so I don't know exactly what happened to Anna in her childhood because I don't have any records of it. But in the fictional version, I decided to put Anna into an indenture so that we could explore what it might be like for a young girl or a teenager to be in circumstances like that. Right. Wow, that's that's interesting. Now, Anna's errand during the war might be surprising to some readers, but in your research, what did you learn about how women participated in the American Revolution? Well, of course, there were many women who were camp followers, who followed their husbands or brothers or fathers to the war. And they might serve mm-hmm. as nurses or do laundry, um, mend uniforms, cook food, because all these things had to keep going. And, you know, when they when they arrived at Valley Forge in December of 1777, the first thing they did was start building shelters. Now, if you've been to Valley Forge Park now, there are replica cabins all over the place, but this place was just a big yes. empty field. And so, mm-hmm. you know, imagine you get there mid-December, and then it's like your first job is to build yourself some kind of shelter. And you really wouldn't have time to prepare food. And again, there were no restaurants. There was no easy way to get food other than to cook it. And so a lot of women went along and participated in that way. Um, And then at home, women also you know, canvassed for supplies to send to the soldiers, raised money for the soldiers. Um, You know, they got their spinning wheels out of the attic and had spinning bees to see who could, because of course there was an embargo on the British goods. And so they didn't, Mm -hmm. you know, they couldn't get cloth and other supplies that they normally got from England. So they were having to manufacture these things on their own when maybe a generation or two before all the women had done that, but that was kind of passing away because the trade was such that you could get manufactured cloth and things like that, but they had to take a step step or two back and, Mm. um, you know, and then participate any way they could. But a lot of women also served as couriers and spies because as one of the uh, characters in the book tells Anna, well, no one will suspect a woman of carrying anything important. Mm. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's telling, isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it? Yes. So yeah. I, I liked to make Anna um, confident of her own abilities. And I think because she was independent and as a servant, as a child, you know, taken out of your home when you're nine or 10, you'd naturally grow up more independent than you would if you were under your mother's influence or your your family's influence. And so she's a little bit rebellious and, and has a big independent streak. And I like that about her. So when she's faced with the prospect of having to go to Valley Forge to bring supplies to her family, she's like, of course I can do it. And honestly, the motivation for her to go to Valley Forge, I mean, think about this, how foolish this was. This is mid-January. She's leaving Virginia, the northern neck of Virginia, and planning a 200-mile overland journey to Valley Forge. And that's at least a week of riding. And that's if you don't get stuck by bad weather. Now, again, no holiday inns. You have to knock at a door and, and ask for lodging. <laughs> you, a woman right. can't stay by herself in a tavern because taverns had communal beds. And oh men goodness. that were traveling would just sleep with other men. And so, you know, a woman by herself, she was not safe to go into an established like establishment like that and get a bed. Right. So it was, you know, there was a lot of perilous things that could happen to her. And we, we kind of, we may be critical of societies now where women can't, you know, ride a bus by themselves or go to the movies by themselves or walk alone at night without fear of being assaulted. But that was a lot of how women were treated during the American Revolution and, and the era, the time women mm-hmm. were considered to be the property of men 
And so a woman traveling alone might be assumed to be a prostitute. Right. And this, of course, worked against her um, in her travels. So, uh, yeah, I think it was, but, but her reason and circling back to the um, the guardianship issues and how women and you know orphans and widows were treated, I think Anna might have looked at the situation and said, "I grew up a widow. If my husband and all three of my brothers die in the war, or they heaven forbid they starve to death at Valley Forge this winter, there's not going to be anyone to advocate for me, and I'll be right back where I started when I was nine. Except now I have three little children that will also be affected." Mm, And I'm sure that that was her motivation that sent her on that trip because she might say, yeah, I survived it, but I don't want my own little girl to have to go through what I went through. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, because we moms will move heaven and earth for our children, I think. Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I think I'm just like awestruck with, we take our freedom as women in the U.S. for granted sometimes. We don't think about. We, we how hard do. one it was. <laughs> yeah. And, and even though things aren't perfect, I think they're so much better than they were. And we've made so much rapid progress when you think about the history of the world and the very short time since the American Revolution, because what we're coming up on 250 years. And in, right. the, in, in the broad span of history, that's just nothing. That's a blip. Right. So, yeah, yes, we've, we've made great progress since then and um, and showcasing an independent woman and what she can get done when given the opportunity, that was a fun thing to do for Anna and, and to share mm-hmm. her story. And it's so wonderful that you took this story that had been kind of buried in history um, that you didn't even hear it growing up, but right. now, now it's a, a novel. It's now so it's wonderful. A novel, yes. And I've got cousins, distant cousins coming out of the woodwork and this has been so great and so much fun. Um, I didn't hear the story growing up because my dad's parents divorced when he was young and his okay. father died when I was only four years old. So I never really knew my grandfather Stone. And mm-hmm. I don't know if he was aware of the story, but I do know I have a cousin who is maybe like a third cousin or a fourth cousin. So he and I come down the same line, but then it branches off like three or four generations back and he grew up hearing the story. So I think it's entirely mm. possible that my grandfather may have heard the story when he was little and it just, there was no opportunity to pass it along or share it right. with his own kids. And, uh, but yes, I do have, um, I had another cousin show up and I'd been, there are two written versions of Anna's story that I had discovered in my research. And the one was with the DAR chapter and another one was written by a historian and minister. And it was published in a genealogical journal in 1903. Now I'd been on the hunt for that version of the story the entire time I was working on this book. So almost three years I've been looking for that version and Mm -hmm. I'm unsuccessful. So the book comes out and I start hearing from people. And one day I get an email from a distant cousin who sends me without being asked a copy of that version of the story. Oh my goodness. And I was like, okay. So so now I've got two versions of the story and they are basically the same. But this first version, um, I think that E.A. Stone, D.D., and Doctor of Divinity had quite a flair for the dramatic. And I also, um, <laughs> this cousin and I have gone back and forth saying, well, only initials. Maybe it was a woman. Could it have been mm-hmm. a woman minister who had written this? And the more I read it, the more I think, no, it was probably a man because – 
it spent an awful lot of time talking about this brave little woman. But then again, it was 1903. And so, you know, and making a big deal out of the fact that a woman was able to accomplish this. And we were like, oh, come on, you know, so, right. <laughs> of course we could accomplish those things. Just, just sit back and watch, you know, so, um, but yes, I, I've loved comparing the two versions and I'm hoping that there might even be more written versions out there that I haven't discovered yet because Anna mm. and Benjamin, no real spoiler here. Of course, the story's got a, a, you know, a happy ending and they go on to have 11 children together in the course of their six, mm. you know, their marriage goes on, you know, married for over 60 years and um, they move wow. west and he plants churches in um, Northern Virginia, which later became West Virginia in Pennsylvania and also as far west as Cambridge, Ohio. So he was still, you know, organizing churches when he was 80. Wow. And that makes me think what uh, what a passionate young man he must have been. Yes. And that was right. that was the that discovery made him a worthy um, you know, love interest for my Anna, my my strong and independent heroine. Because you know, I kind of mm -hmm. thought, well, she's married to a, a country preacher, and how exciting could he possibly be? And I struggled a little <laughs> bit trying to come up with making him, you know, swoonworthy enough for a story that's got an element of romance in it. But mm -hmm. when I researched his side, and I learned that he was on the forefront of a movement to establish religion, religious freedom in America long before this was a given. And he was, you know, part of these outlaw Baptists of Virginia, and a lot of them were harassed and jailed and beaten up by the Anglicans because the Anglicans didn't like the dissenters in Virginia. And, and there was only one church that was recognized in Virginia at that time, and that was the Church of England. And so mm. Benjamin and his friends and his fellows, um, Baptist clergy, thought, well, independence from the crown will weaken the Church of England's hold on Virginia. And give us mm -hmm. a chance to establish other religions because the Baptists and the Presbyterians and the Methodists were all being persecuted in Virginia at that time. So the fact that oh. he was willing to get beaten up and possibly go to jail, I don't have even found any records of him going to jail, but I did find records of his mentor and other men who preached at the church that was closest to his home being jailed for their um, – what. Disturbing the peace and preaching schismatic doctrines were, were the accusations against them. So that made him, it turned him into a warrior, mm -hmm. you know, from, from farmer and preacher into warrior that this was a cause that he was willing to die for. And so I say early on in the book that that might be his cause, but Anna's cause is keeping him alive to make sure that freedom comes to pass. So, yeah, I think that they were a great team and probably a 1770s power couple such that it could be. Right. Wow. That's really cool. What do you hope readers will take away from this book? I hope readers will take away gosh, I never knew that about the American Revolution. There's so much going on behind the scenes that I had never heard of before, like the conspiracy yes. against Washington, just simply knowing that Washington was not universally revered in the war years. Because I think in, you know, in, in our high school history classes, we're told that you know he was the father of our country and nobody could have done the job that he did. And, and all these things are true. But he also lost a lot of battles and he had a lot of detractors. Um, on the board of war and in Congress, and you know he had enemies, and so it was um, it was very important to not let the squabbling between the members of Congress, gee, imagine, um, reach the ears of the French <laughs> while they were trying to finalize the Franco-American alliance, because they're like, if if they know that we're fighting like middle school girls over here, 
will they back us? And if they don't back mm. us, we'll lose the war. And if we lose the war, we're probably all going to get beheaded. So it was, you know, it was very delicate and it was very important to kind of hush up those details. So until they could, mm-hmm. you know, bring in more people, you know, bring in the French to help them. And, uh, you know, there's all these things that I hope that people will read the book and say, oh, wow, I never did know that or, or I never thought of it that way. And right. I also found that a lot of the things that Anna would have worried about are not so different from the things that we worry about now. And mm-hmm. as much as things have changed for us, I think the human condition basically stays the same. You know, we, we want a better life for ourselves and our children. We worry about government corruption. We worry about disease, um, you know, especially in this past year with the pandemic. I started writing in 2018. So, you know, COVID wasn't even on the radar, but you can really relate it to how they felt about smallpox in the 1760s mm-hmm. and 70s because they suffered epidemics right. almost every year in different parts of the country. Oh, that's so true. Well, I want to switch gears a little bit here and talk mm-hmm. about your career. Okay. Um, I understand you didn't start your professional life as a writer. You spent many years in the world of edu- educational theater and dance. Yes. Um, so what led you to become an author then? Well, um, I had about 25 years of teaching dance in a studio. I was a studio owner for a while. Um, I choreographed the musicals at my daughter's middle and high school. And actually, I still do that. I, I just wrapped a show on Saturday. We had a wonderful time. And uh, and that's it's been a big part of my life. I was always taking dancing lessons as a kid. I did the musicals and was on drill team and never really thought of it as a career. But, um, you know, then I married this guy. <laughs> Because isn't that how it always goes? <laughs> I married this guy yes. and he went to grad school. And so I worked while he was in grad school. And when he finished his PhD and got his first position teaching at a university, it was in a very small college town. And, you know, he had said, you worked really hard the last four years while I was doing this. And now I want you to pick something that you love and don't worry about how much money you make. Just just pick something that you love. And so we end up in this very small town in Ohio, and um, we're back in our home state, and we're excited about that, but there's just really not a whole lot of opportunity for me. So I'm looking around mm-hmm. at the different jobs and thinking, well, I could be a receptionist at a doctor's office, or I could, you know, maybe I could go work at the little newspaper or something. But, and then, um, but I had always had that performing and costuming and, you know, the love of, of the performing in my background. And I, so I started teaching at a dance studio and before Mm. long, it was like, well, now I know what I want to be when I grow up. And so I just kind of went in and learned as much as I could about how to teach. And Mm. by the time he moved on to his next um, university at, in a larger city, we moved to Columbus when, after about four years in that small college town. And before long, I was teaching at Ballet Met which is the, has the professional company that does the Nutcracker and they have an academy mm-hmm. with about a thousand kids. So I was one of 40 on the faculty after teaching in a little storefront studio in, in this other town. And, and I felt like I'd landed my dream job, right? You know, cause I've got colleagues to talk about things with and a big show right. and a great theater. And, and this was wonderful. And my daughter grew up taking lessons there. And I had such a great time every year with the performances and, you know, the Nutcracker and the whole thing. And then my husband said, you know, I got another job and we're moving to Texas. And it coincided with our daughter graduating high school. And I thought, Mm. wow, she's an only child. And, 
she's going off to college. And if I take another job in a studio in Texas, then he's just going to be sitting at home by himself every evening. And, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, you kind of reach a point where you're like, physically, it's hard. You can only teach so many hours a week and it's just hard on you physically. And, and I thought, well, I've always wanted to be a writer. I had an idea for a book that I'd been trying on and off to pull together probably for 15 years at that point. And I thought, well, I I knew two years in advance that I was going to be moving to Texas and my life was going to be changing. So I gave myself those two years to figure out how to be a writer while I was still teaching dance. And so we get through graduation from high school and we moved to Texas. And and that was when I got serious about publishing. Um, And my my first novel came out about like a year after we moved down there and I had a nonfiction that I had been working on and that one I published also. And, and once you do that a couple times, you know, when I got the first novel, you know, you open the box, you take out and you hold your book in your hand. And I started to cry a little bit. And then I was like, Oh, you dummy, you know, the Mm -hmm. next, the next one in the series is coming out next year. (laughs) So (laughs) it was it kind of just the momentum grew. And I really liked right. doing it. And, and you know, you're a writer too. It's hard. There are some days that you just go, I don't know why in the world I'm doing this. And then other mm-hmm. days, you're absolutely just in love with telling stories. And, you know, I had good reactions to the young adult books that I had written. And I, you know, won a couple awards for the nonfiction books. And I thought, well, let's just keep on with this. And it was when I had finished the dystopian series that the opportunity came to write historical fiction for the first time. And that was just like the perfect mashup of digging in and doing the research, which I love to do in a nonfiction mm-hmm. book and making stuff up, which I love to do in a novel. So this was, <laughs> this was like, Hey, I really do like this. And so it's, it's been a wonderful experience. Um, I think answering Liberty's calls, probably my favorite of them all, as much as I love every project I've done so far, I, this is, this is the one that's closest to my heart. Oh, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. So what are you writing now? Can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, I'm working on my third nonfiction book for the same publisher, um, Small Press, out of Newark, Ohio. So he's right up the road from me when I'm in town doing shows. And I can, you know, how many of us get to actually know our publisher, you know, and go out to lunch with our publisher? It doesn't happen very often. And he and I have had a working relationship for about 10 years now. And I love being, uh, you know, that close. But I'm doing uh, a travel guide to the historic mills of West Virginia. So mm. it's 54 mills, the history, the, you know, the technical end of mills that um, were built in the 1730s are going to be different than mills that were built around 1912, 1917 because of the development and technology. And so I'm comparing and contrasting the physical aspects of the mill, um, a little history of their influence on their communities and some of the colorful stories of their owners. And so then that means I get to drive around West Virginia and take a lot of beautiful pictures of these old structures. And I've been having a ball. Wow. That sounds like fun. It is fun. And then I've also decided I wanted to do a follow-up to answering Liberty's call because Anna's just one of, oh yeah, absolutely. Anna's just one of many ladies who made great contributions to our cause for independence that we maybe don't know about. And I discovered Mm. a young woman in um, South Carolina who left a series of letters that talk about her involvement in um, the events leading up to the fall of Charleston in 1780. And it mentions um, some of her girlfriends who were imprisoned for being spies. 
And the more I dug around and the more I um, researched that, I'm like, oh, this is going to be a fascinating story. So I'm, I'm, even though Anna probably won't make an appearance, I think I can make a case for having Benjamin and the brothers end up um, ah. with the third Virginia that gets ki- that gets captured at the fall of Charleston. So we will have um, a loosely tied series, and I'm hoping to do at least that one and possibly one more to do, um, you know, a revolutionary, a revolutionary ladies series. Oh, that would be great. So this is a question I ask all my guests. So since mm-hmm. you've listened to an episode, you know what's coming. And we kind of touched on it a little bit already, but how do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? Wow. Um, we did touch on it a little bit. I think um, the women and girls in our time today who worry about equality and things like that, I think perspective is helpful mm-hmm. to see that yes. how how hard the women of the past worked to get to where we are now and how we should be thankful and, and not backslide. But at the same time, we shouldn't feel as though we have a, a raw deal because I think things are about right. as great as they've ever been in the history of the world for women in yes. our society. And also just to, to maybe have a little perspective on what lengths these people were willing to go to, to achieve liberty and independence mm. and to try this great experiment that became the United States of America and to support it and to love it with all its faults because even with the problems that we face as a nation, we, we're a huge, sprawling nation with lots and lots of people. And of course, there's going to be lots of discord and lots of you know division. But at the same time, mm-hmm. it's still the greatest experiment that was ever undertaken. And it has afforded more quality of life and more, um, you know, expansion, more opportunity for expansion and growth and development of technology than anything else in the history of man. Mm, That's so true. You know, and, and that's, that's what we need to, we need to have perspective. And to me, that's what reading historical fiction gives you is a little perspective. Yes. That's just very wise words. Definitely. So, Tracy, this has been a wonderful conversation. What's the best way for listeners to follow you? Yes, they can find me on Facebook and Instagram and um, Twitter, um, and also through my website. My website is Tracy Lawson Books, and it's Tracy, T-R-A-C-Y, not with an E, but I'm Tracy Lawson Author on Facebook and on Instagram, and Tracy, middle initial S for Stone, on uh, Twitter. Tracy S. Lawson on Twitter. Okay. Well, lots of places to keep up with oh, you. Yeah, you can find me just about anywhere. So. <laughs> so I'm so excited that you're going to be writing more historical fiction. And I'm so glad you were here today. Thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you. It was really fun, Allison. Thank you for having me. Well, my friends, I really enjoyed that conversation with Tracy. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it. I just loved her passion for history and her passion for um our country and recognition of just how great it is despite its flaws. Now, friends, if you are enjoying this podcast, will you please hit that subscribe button so you get a new episode in your podcatcher every week? Um, And also, if you could leave a review and let other people know how much you're enjoying it, that would be super helpful. Of course, go to the show notes and 
I will have links there to Tracy's books and um, her website and, and all the ways you can follow her. So you can find the show notes at alisontreat.com slash blog, A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T dot com slash B-L-O-G. That's where you will find the show notes to all the episodes. And in the show notes, you can also find a link to the Facebook group, which is called Historical Fiction Unpacked Podcast Group. So you can either search it on Facebook or get to it from the show notes. You can also, in the show notes, find a link to our Patreon page, which if you have the ability to join my Patreon and support the show I will be forever grateful. And there are some wonderful perks you can get by joining the community on Patreon. So just head to patreon.com slash Allison Treat. That's Allison with one L, A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T. And there you can find out all the details of becoming a Patreon, a patron on Patreon. Now, I mentioned last time, and I want to mention again, because... I want you all to know, you authors who might be looking for editors, that now is the time to email me and ask for a quote. If you're interested in getting into my fall schedule, um, if you're interested in having any editing done, you can shoot me an email and tell me about your project. And we will talk about getting you into my schedule for the fall. Just go to my website and it's really straightforward how to email me there. Now, before I let you go, of course, I have a quote. And this one comes from Michael Crichton. He said, if you don't know history, then you don't know anything. You are a leaf that doesn't know it is part of a tree. So my friends, make time to read historical fiction this week. And I will talk to you again in the next episode.